Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. There's a good chance you know someone who is a prostate cancer survivor. One in eight men and one in six black men will get prostate cancer during their lifetime. It's not something we're all good at talking about, but we need to. Prostate cancer outcomes are much better when the cancer is caught early, and family history is also a major risk factor. So this hour, we're setting all the embarrassment aside. A urologist and a survivor are in the studio with me, and we're talking about prostate cancer and how we can better save lives. What are the signs and symptoms of prostate cancer, and what do Black men in particular need to know? As we talk, I want to hear from you, too. Are you a prostate cancer survivor? What's the story behind your diagnosis and treatment? And how has your prostate cancer experience continued to affect you as a survivor? The phone lines are open. Call us at these numbers, 651-227-6000. Again, that's 651-227-6000. Or you can call us at 800 242 2828. Let's bring in our guest. Dr. Christopher Warlick is here. Dr. Warlick is the head of the Department of Urology at the University of Minnesota Medical School and an associate professor there who treats several urologic cancers with an emphasis on prostate cancer. Good morning, Dr. Warlick, and thank you for your time. Good morning. Happy to be here. Thank Hi. You. I know you're busy. You see a lot of a lot of patients. So again, thank you for your time. Willie Bridges is also with us. Willie is a prostate cancer survivor from Minneapolis. He was first diagnosed about 12 years ago. Hi, Willie. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Hi. Thank you for coming in as well. Nice to be here. So, uh, Willie, first of all, I want the people to know you look well. It's good to know your, your treatments seem to be working. Uh, you're a survivor. You're 75 years old. That's okay if I tell everybody. That's okay. You, you're it's 75. Uh, take us back, Willie, uh, to that day when you were diagnosed uh, more than 10 years ago. I, I understand um, your doctor caught this during a routine exam. Is that right? That's correct. It was like my doctor, my family practitioner doctor had did a PSA. He had been following me and following me. And he had noticed the numbers had gone up. My numbers were going My PSA, my numbers gone up. So tell me what a PSA is. I don't know what uh, that is. is that, doctor, or Dr. Willick, that's a, a screening. What's a PSA? Yeah, PSA uh, stands for prostate-specific antigen. And it means it's a, a protein made only by the prostate gland. And when there's some disturbance in the prostate, for many different reasons, one of those being possibly prostate cancer, your PSA level may rise. And that's detected in, a, in the blood. It's a simple blood test. Okay. So you're doing anything. You're going in for your annual exam. Correct. I was going for my exam and my doc had been following me. And uh, several times I'd gone there, he noticed that the number was going up and he suggested that I go see a urologist, mm-hmm. which I did. So I saw a urologist and, you know, did the whole thing, did um, a biopsy, did that. And um, he had found that I had cancer, had prostate cancer. And he had called me, which I like at 1030 at night. Willie, I need you to come in. You have prostate cancer. And that's how I found out. I have to sit with that for a minute. What, What do you remember vividly? What that felt like? What went through your mind when you heard those words? Why me? 1030 at night, by myself, in bed. Uh, just question, why me? What did I do? I don't do drugs. I don't do this. I don't do that. And just question, why Why has this happening happening to me? Mm-hmm. And those are the questions that went over and over in my mind. So it was like, and I'm laying in bed and thinking and crying, you know, that this, uh, this, this had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't done anything. So it was like the crazy talk. 
But right. that's what it got into my mind. No, human. And and did you then call somebody else? I called my best friend. Good. And we talked. And she said, well, just get into the doctor and see what's going on, find out the specific specifics. And uh, I did that. So okay. We're going to come back to more of your story. Uh, Dr. Warlick, uh, what do doctors suggest when it comes to screening for prostate cancer? Uh, uh, what are the current screening guidelines, so to speak? Yeah. So, you know, this is, um, first of all, I just want to thank you for doing this topic today, because I think it is absolutely a topic that requires more attention, a lot more public discussion uh, Mm -hmm. about what's going on. And and I think that one of the, one of the challenges uh, in public conversations about prostate cancer is that there are sometimes mixed messages uh, that, that that people receive. So for instance, people will say, you'll hear on one hand that most men die with their prostate cancer, not from their prostate cancer. Um, you'll also hear that PSA screening saves lives, and then you'll also hear that PSA screening can result in overdiagnosis and, in some cases, overtreatment mm-hmm. of men with prostate cancer. And the reality is both things are true, mm-hmm. and that's what makes this a complicated topic. But I think when patients hear mixed messages, sometimes that also confuses people. And, and when there's confusion, I think they're less likely to act. Let's not but, deal with it, right? Right. It's not clear what or I'm we're supposed not to sure do. what we're supposed to right. do, but right. but in, but to answer your question, I didn't mean to get too far aside there, but I but I think <laughs> it's important to, to as an introduction. Um, current recommendations in, in terms of screening would be for men, you know. So really, just to take a step back, one of the key points about making a decision to screen is what we refer to as shared decision making. So so. The guideline suggests that for men in whom screening is appropriate, which would be basically men who have at least a 10 to 15-year life expectancy um, and who desire to be screened, have a conversation with their physician. And if it's decided um, between the physician and the patient that screening uh, should commence, then uh, for people of average risk, we talk about uh, beginning screening about age 45 to 50. And those for high at high risk, which would include patients with a family history of of prostate cancer and a first degree relative, so a father or brother, uh, those uh, of African American descent that we start screening even earlier, mm-hmm. uh, generally around ages forty to forty five for your initial PSA. And uh, what about people who don't know their full family history? Uh, you know, that's a lot of folks. We don't really know everything about all of our biological, you know, parents or, you know, that, that information may not be av- available when I think about there's a family history involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that the the short answer would be that if you're concerned, err on the side of caution and start earlier mm-hmm. um, as if you assume that you might have some prostate cancer in your family. Um, the average age of first diagnosis I have in my notes, uh, this is from the American Cancer Society, 67. Um, is that, uh, so does that mean, you know, what does that mean? I mean, when should younger men start thinking about the this? Yeah, so um, that is true. So most men end up getting, getting diagnosed in their 60s. Mm-hmm. But for people who end up uh, having lethal prostate cancer, oftentimes it ends up, being manifest earlier than that. And so really mm-hmm. this screening recommendations about trying to get your first PSA in your 40s or very early 50s are uh, attempting to identify people that have early onset of disease. And those are the folks that may be most likely to die of their disease over time. Are there signs and symptoms or no? Like what would make me think like, oh, I should go get this checked? Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, um, this is another area of Contra- not controversy, but confusion, I think, mm-hmm. between patients. So 
First off, it is very common for men as we get older to develop lower urinary tract symptoms. And most typically, this is, and this is problems with urination. So urgency, frequency of urination, slow urinary stream, incomplete emptying, things of uh, symptoms like that. Mm-hmm. And in the vast majority of times, that's simply going to be to benign, non-cancerous enlargement of the prostate. On rare occasions, it could be associated with uh, prostate cancer. And so I think one important thing that I would encourage uh, people uh, listening is that if they're having those lower urinary tract symptoms, that's important to be checked out. Now, again, Mm -hmm. in the vast majority of cases, it's not going to be cancer, uh, but it may um, improve the quality of life if we can address some of those urinary symptoms anyway and provide some reassurance that it's it's not cancer. But, But PSA testing... Um, helps us find the disease roughly six to 10 years earlier than we would find it in the absence of PSA testing when people, mm-hmm. when we come to find out only when they have symptoms. So urination irregularity, just to speak real plain, you start peeing different. That's that's kind one potential. That's one potential sign. But it, but most of the time we are diagnosing it before people have symptoms. Okay. Um where is the prostate? Now, I Googled it and I got a lot of images. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't share it on the yeah, radio. Yeah, yeah. So if you Abs- Google it, be ready. But let's absolutely. talk about where it's located. Yeah. So the prostate is uh, stuck in a very inconvenient place in the pelvis. Uh, it is sort of attached on, on the base of the prostate, attaches to the bladder. And then the other end, the apex of the prostate, attaches to the urethra, which then leads out the penis. And mm-hmm. that's, of course, where we, where we uh, urinate. And it also sits on the surface of the rectum. So this is why when uh, you receive a digital rectal exam and a physician places a finger in the rectum, we can feel the surface of the prostate because it's sitting just on the other side of the rectal wall. And so that, that digital rectal exam, this is where the embarrassment comes. And this is the you know uncomfortable you know uh, situation talking about it or having it done. And what do you want people to know about that? I mean, it, that's the way to check it, right? Well, uh, it is one of the components. However, I would like to emphasize that, that quite frankly, the more important component of screening is really the PSA test. And in fact, we are backing off a little bit uh, in terms of the digital rectal exam up front, primarily because we don't want it to be a deterrent to right. getting I'm not going in because I don't want that. I don't want to have to do that. So we are really focusing a lot more attention on the, the PSA blood test. And if that's elevated, then you may get a digital rectal exam as sort of part of the further evaluation, but we don't want that to be a deterrent to people getting screened initially. Mm -hmm. Willie, uh, tell us about like, you know, the first time you had to undergo um, Mm -hmm. either the, well, the the blood test probably wasn't a big deal, but um, have you had this digital rectal exam? Yes, that's what I had. Yeah. And then what were your thoughts about it? Like, well, I hope this is over quick or what? It was over quick. It was? It wasn't really a long process. It was over quick. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then after that, and then it led to the biopsy to make sure. And is that something that men talk about? Like at, after you get a certain age, like, oh, it's time to to have this checked or do, is that never a, a topic of conversation? I think for me, after I had found out I had cancer and so forth, I talked to my friends. Mm-hmm. I talked to my male friends about, you know, you need to get checked. This is what I found out and so forth and what have you. What did they say? And, you know, oh, what are you talking about, man? You know, I was like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and it's interesting, the whole process of the guys checking, for some reason, sex came into the conversation. <laughs> How is this going to affect my sex mm-hmm. life and so forth and what have you? So, no, you need to have this taken care of. This is something you need to, you know, mm-hmm. it's simple. It takes no time. Get yourself checked. Do a PSA or 
but you need to get this taken care of. And this was my journey. So I was able to talk to my friends about my journey, that it was, it was a journey and, you know, that it is, it can be embarrassing if you allow it to be embarrassed, embarrassed by it, but it's you taking care of yourself. And that's an important thing. Did you have any um, any early signs or symptoms that made you think like, oh, like maybe this is this is different than what it used to be? As the doctor was saying, the only thing that I noticed was I was going to the bathroom a lot. I was peeing a lot, urine a lot, mm-hmm. but I was doing it a lot. And that's what you were, was, as the doctor was saying earlier, that was the only thing in retrospect, looking back, what was going on, what happened. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier, my family physician, he was the one who had been watching my PSA and noticing that it was going up. So he was the one who said, you need to go to urologist right. and have yourself checked. But that uh, frequency in, in urinating, that, does that come with aging too? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So mm-hmm. as we get older, as men get older, uh, generally speaking, our prostates tend to enlarge. And mm-hmm. as the prostate gets bigger, it tends to cause more obstruction of the urinary flow from the bladder out. Mm -hmm. And that obstruction results in this constellation of urinary symptoms that that we were describing. Enlarged prostate, uh, also in the news because King Charles was diagnosed with enlarged prostate. What does that mean and why would that require medical attention? Yeah. Um, So, and again, I I think it's a, a really great point to highlight, again, sort of the difference in contrast benign non-cancerous enlargement of the prostate, which again, almost every male is going to have it to to some degree as they age, Mm -hmm. versus prostate cancer. And so the main issue with the uh, benign enlargement of the prostate is that it can, and certainly does not always, but it certainly can result in these lower urinary tract symptoms. And so if you are um, having increasing difficulty with urination, this may also diminish your quality of life. And in sort of the worst case scenarios, you may end up in urinary retention where you're unable to urinate at all. And needless mm-hmm. to say, that's, a, that's an emergency. So, Dr. Warlick, uh, in addition to being the the head of urology there at the U of M Medical School, uh, you're also a black man. So what are your personal thoughts about just going to the doctor and getting checked regularly? Uh, Have you found that, you know, in the black community that this is, you know, problematic sometimes? Uh, For sure. Um, But but I also would say that as over so kind of taking the long view of this, uh, you know, having been been uh, involved in this for a long time now, I do think it's getting better. Uh, and partly because of public discussions such as this, uh, mm-hmm. that really kind of helps to spread uh, the word. Um, uh, we also benefit from stories such as Willie here, who's willing to share his story, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that other men may may sort of hear this and say, "Boy, okay, maybe it is worth getting getting uh, checked out and kind of demystifying things." Mm-hmm. And and trust. Do you think there's some trust that is is improving now in the medical community? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, and certainly I can tell you that there are at least um, people within the medical community paying attention to this and attempting mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, mitigate the barriers to providing, number one, access, and then also working to try to make um, all people feel comfortable when they come to the doctor, and certainly uh, African-Americans among them, uh, but really trying to reach out and be inclusive uh, so that all people feel comfortable. Topic of conversation in the medical school. The, our future doctors are, are, are we seeing um, medical stu- school students getting more exposure to you know disparities in healthcare? As a absolutely as a topic of discussion and 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 education on this for for sure. And um, it is uh, you know it's one thing. The, the first step, if you will, is recognition mm-hmm. uh, and understanding that these disparities exist, and then sort of figuring out you know perhaps why they exist, and then the hardest part, of course is impacting them. And that's, mm. 
that could be a whole other topic of discussion. All right. I want to get some of our listeners on the conversations. We have some folks calling in uh, who are, are prostate cancer patients and survivors. I want to hear from them. We're talking about prostate cancer. If you're just joining us, I want to hear from you. Are you a prostate cancer survivor? What is the story behind your diagnosis and treatment? What questions do you have for our guests? We have a urologist and a, and a survivor in the studio with me. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's take a phone call from this listener in St. Louis Park who's been patiently waiting. Hi, Terry. Thank you for calling in. What did you want to tell us? Yeah, good morning, Angela. Thank you so much for this uh, uh, really important topic and the great guests you have. Uh, I'm 73 and a prostate cancer survivor or better thriver who is now in my eighth year of being prostate cancer free. Wonderful. And um, you haven't addressed it yet, but really, and and you probably will go into it about two of the forms of treatment, uh, radiation and surgery. But there is another one that I actually decided to do um, after about a year and a half of research. It's called brachytherapy, and I had it done by Dr. Stephen Frank at MD Anderson Cancer uh, Center in Houston, which is the world's largest cancer center. Uh, brachytherapy involves inserting tiny radioactive seeds into the prostate cancer cells. And for those who qualify, it's as or more effective as radiation and surgery but it's an outpatient procedure and doesn't have some of the complications um, that come like sometimes sexual dysfunction or urinary discharge. And um, so I want people to be aware of that because it's not always very talked about. Um, and it allows, you know, people to exercise the next day. Um, so it, mm-hmm. it just is, is really excellent as far as side effects. And the other things that are just really, really important um, that the doctor has mentioned, you know, about PSA tests. Um, but one of the key things I think for people to know is um, that there are uh, prostate cancer support groups mm. that are extremely important for men mm-hmm. who are trying to deal with this. And then there's a lot that we can do with supplements. Like one of the most important things is to have adequate levels of vitamin D3. Um, most Americans are low in D3, and there's a definite correlation between that and it's just something that's extremely important for you know for all men to do as well as uh, great research showing the benefits of plant-based diets and ketogenic diets i I do an Mm -hmm. organic vegan ketogenic diet i'm so glad that uh you have been uh you're in in survivorship. Uh, you say you've been cancer-free for eight years now. Uh, thank you for calling and sharing your stories. And he's brought us to it. Thank you, Terry, uh, to treatment options. So, Dr. Warlick, uh, let's talk about treatment options, beginning uh, with uh, radiation. And then there's also surgery. And then Terry has mentioned some other options. But what do, what do people need to know about the treatment options? Yeah, so there are a variety, uh, uh, several treatment options that are available. And one of the things that I would just state up front is that the um, choice in terms of which avenue to pursue um, is impacted by a whole host, uh, a whole host of factors. And mm-hmm. so, uh, needless to say, one's cancer characteristics drive a lot of that decision making. And so, um, one treatment may be more appropriate for another person, uh, or for one person, and a different approach may be more amenable for a uh, more appropriate for a different person, just based on their disease characteristics. And importantly. Uh, some of the different uh, approaches have different side effect profiles. And so to be fair, a lot of what goes into the decision making for many men is simply 
choosing which side effect profile they feel they could live with the best should they have some of those side effects. Mm -hmm. And so the major categories would include surgery, uh, removal of the prostate, uh, radiation uh, therapy, as Terry mentioned, and Brachytherapy is one of the subcategories of radiation, so we would kind of include that uh, generally in the in the uh, uh, category of radiation. There's external beam radiation, a second type of external beam called proton beam radiation. Then there's brachytherapy, uh, but all of those would sort of fall uh, generally under the con uh, uh, concept of radiation. And then there are other uh, forms of therapy, such as cryotherapy, freezing of the prostate, high-intensity focused ultrasound, uh, HIFU is another option. Um, and then a host of other <laughs> of other There's options as well. Many options so, depending yeah, on what, sure. what the the your characteristics are. How does what does life look like, or how does life change after the prostate is removed? Yeah. So following surgery, the two big risks uh, that men uh, face the potential of having afterwards are leaking urine following the procedure and loss of erectile function. Now those uh, again are somewhat. Um, determined uh, the, the likelihood of those outcomes do have something to do with your disease characteristics mm -hmm. uh, going in. But for many men, they're, they're um, likely to have a very good outcome. And so generally speaking, if somebody has disease that's really um, confined to the prostate and they undergo a uh, radical prostatectomy, around 90% of men at a year from surgery can expect to be dry. And we define dry by uh, saying that they don't need to wear any pads on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and to be fair, that doesn't mean they don't ever lose a drop of urine, but just not to the point of where they feel they need to wear any pads to, to help, uh, to help um, protect themselves uh, from that degree of leaking. So, so there are, again, a wide range of outcomes after surgery. Yes, but, depends. but many, many men do well. Right. Okay. Uh, Willie, when my producer connected with you, I was sitting next to her. She was on the phone with you, mm -hmm. and you were in the hospital just last week. Are you okay? I'm fine. I was just in the hospital. I had gone through – it was interesting. I'm going to correct something. I had cancer about 14, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and I, my journey was a – it was a journey. I was fine, and then the cancer came back probably 11 – five, six years after the first time, mm -hmm. and then I did the radiation. I had radiation, and fast forward to now – um, the radiation had affected the bladder. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone through this journey over 15, 20, almost 15, 18 years. But I had this journey, you know, first to have the prostate removed. Then I had, you know, the, uh, the radiation because the cancer was there. And then I had this present time, fast forward last week, surgery, because the radiation had affected my bladder. And I was in hospital for a couple of days and had a blood transfusion, iron buildup. I had lost so much blood and so forth. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's been a journey. I Absolutely. It's been a journey. But, again, as we were saying earlier, it's so important to connect with your physician. And has this cancer experience, has it changed your outlook on life at all? Because you seem very uh, at peace. You seem joyous. You have a good friend network, it, it seems. I think that was an important thing for me, my support network, my family, my friends, that was the support. Because it, it was like, you know, okay, what's going on? What's happening here? Why Why is this all affecting my body? And mm -hmm. it, but the friends who support and talking to my doctor, the urologist was a great guy to talk to, comic. He says, oh, did you read the small print? I said, no, what small print? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he has some humor. Mm -hmm. But he was very supportive. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that whole team. Now, I was fortunate. I had my family practitioner. I had the urologist who was very supportive. And if I had any questions, he says, give me a call. You know, so that was that was a positive experience. And it wasn't as scary. And I wasn't going through this journey by myself. Right. And that, that that's the key, key for me. The key. Let's take more phone calls as we talk about prostate cancer. Uh, this morning, I'm talking with a urologist and a uh, cancer survivor. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Uh, in Minneapolis, Walter is joining us uh, on the phone. Good morning, Walter. What do you want to tell us? Uh, good morning, Angela. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer 20 or 21 years ago when I was either 58 or 59. It was uh, I was diagnosed through digital exam at a routine annual physical, and then that was followed by PSA. Uh, that was followed then by a biopsy. And I guess this is a point I'd like to make, is that the... Uh, urologist told me afterwards, said, well, it looks like you only have cancer in one uh, one of the lobes of the prostate, so I can do that. And I instructed him, no, take the whole thing. Post-surgery, he was, we were visiting, he said, well, it's a good thing we did take the whole thing because the post-surgery biopsy showed that there were cancer cells in both lobes. So <laughs> my decision to instruction to remove mm-hmm. the whole prostate was happened to be the correct one. Well, and what that do, is my story. What do you want people to know yes. about prostate cancer? Well, I have two sons, and I've encouraged them to be sure to get uh, checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, Life goes on. Be very pragmatic. I, I, yes, I have erectile dysfunction. I've had, but there are many other things that compensate for that. I mean, that's, that's kind of minimal in the scheme of things. You know, it's not a concern. I have had five, six years ago, no, mm-hmm. five years ago, I had kidney cancer. So I had one of my uh, kidneys removed. Uh, but life goes on. And you just, I'm very pragmatic and just and get it taken care of, guys. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Walter. Willie mentioned his friend network, that that is key, that, you know, you're not going through it alone. And has that been key for you as well, Walter? Um, no, I have a good support group and mm-hmm. stuff, but I guess I just didn't fret about it too much, mm-hmm. you know, at all. And well, I am glad you're I still will- with us, and I'm so glad that you called in. Thank you, Walter. Uh, another phone call uh, in White Bear Lake. We have David on the phone. Good morning, David. What do you want to tell us about prostate cancer? Oh, good morning, Angela. Um, I, I have prostate cancer. I've had it for about three years and been on watchful waiting um, through uh, the care at Minnesota Urology. And they recommended a, a total removal of the prostate. I had a second opinion at the U of M, and they recommended a total removal. But I only had uh, two small lesions, with one of them being cancerous, and they weren't spreading. So I kind of got tired of being on watchful waiting, and I didn't really want to have a total removal right away. So I, I did ask my doctor at one point about high or high-intensity focused ultrasound. And he said, I asked if they did that in the Twin Cities, and he said, no, there's no profit in it. So I, I finally looked on the Internet and found out at the Mayo Clinic that they did that, and I've been going there. I had a PSA test. I had um, uh, MRI, and I just finished a biopsy about two weeks ago, and I'm going to visit with my doctor on the 12th, and I'll find out whether they can 
actually treat my cancer by heating it up uh, with two focused ultrasound beams uh, in my prostate without total removal, and maybe that will get rid of the cancer completely from my body. Mm. And David, do you have, uh, again, in terms of a support system, do you have people you can talk openly about this or do you not talk about it? I talk about it. I'm not afraid to to let people know that um, Mm -hmm. I have prostate cancer. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about. Mm -hmm. It's the reality of life. And uh, if I can get the treatment and I can get it dealt with, that's fine. And if I meet with my doctor on the 12th and he tells me after the the uh, 20-point biopsy that it has spread, then I will have the total removal but I don't think doctors should um, jump to the total removal of your prostate right away if it's not necessary. And I, mm-hmm. from what I have seen and from what the doctors say at the Mayo Clinic, that high-focused intensity ultrasound does work on small lesions that haven't spread. All right. That's David there in White Bear Lake, uh, a prostate cancer survivor. Thank you, David. Uh, take care of yourself. Uh, Dr. Warlick, again, uh, every situation different. And so, you know, when we hear people's stories, you know, again, the encouragement is is just be aware and to ask questions. Uh, absolutely. And and again, it's, you know, every every situation is different. And, and you know, what uh, David was alluding to is the concept of focal therapy. And, uh, and this is uh, an, an approach where the attempt is to treat um, the, what we would refer to as sort of the clinically significant parts of uh, the, the, the clinically significant cancer that may be in a limited part of the prostate without treating the whole prostate. And the idea being that this may have a fewer risk of side effects. And absolutely, this is uh, a growing area and there are multiple uh, different types of, um, of uh, energy sources that can be used for focal therapy, HIFU being one of those. Uh, but there are there are several others, and uh, it's a growing area. Uh, but up until you know fairly recently, we had been limited in our ability to determine exactly where the cancer is located. And so, as the previous caller uh, had mentioned before that, sometimes uh, we think the cancer is in one part of the prostate, and then we come to find out later that it's actually a little bit more extensive. And so that's one of the limitations. But we've made great strides with the um, over the last ten or fifteen years with the um, uh, implementation of MRI for prostate cancer. So we now are able to, with uh, um, a, a much greater degree uh, of, uh, of certainty, know where the uh, clinically significant disease is within the prostate. And that's really uh, one of the things that has made focal therapy a potential uh, option for patients uh, moving forward. And the previous previous caller also talked about living with erectile dysfunction and said, I'm just glad to still be here. I'm still alive. Life goes on. As a urologist, do you yeah. talk, have conversations with patients about that? that a- absolutely, a lot? absolutely. We have to be, you know, very upfront because it's a very real uh, possibility. And again, it's certainly not the case that uh, every patient will have erectile dysfunction. And in fact, just for a little bit of history uh, for the for the uh, listeners, so. Um, the, uh, the nerves that run, uh, to the penis to mediate blood flow for erections are, are attached to the side of the prostate and kind of right where the prostate sits on the surface of the rectum. And it is possible to peel those nerves off of the prostate during surgery 
in men in whom it's appropriate to do so from a cancer control standpoint. And that's referred to as nerve sparing. Mm-hmm. And that operation was, was developed by Dr. Patrick Walsh at Johns Hopkins. And I had the great fortune of training with Dr. Walsh uh, during, my, during my residency. And uh, he developed that technique starting about the early, uh, early 80s is when he started uh, perfecting that and, and was, um, through great efforts, disseminated this, this approach uh, across the world. And so now that is, the, the again, very commonly uh, performed by pretty much any urologist doing a radical mm. prostatectomy, and that can greatly in, increase the likelihood of being able to have an erection following the procedure. Mm. But one of the things that I like to tell all my patients is that we can almost guarantee that we can help you to get an erection following the procedure. It's just a question of what you're willing to do to get it. So we have <laughs> okay. we have multiple you know levels what? of intervention, and we can talk more at some other time, but there are, there um, are options. On that note, we're going to take a news break, <laughs> Dr. Warlick. Well, first, let me ask you, we've heard from some, some uh, callers, some, some men who've talked about their own prostate cancer experience. And what have you heard so far that uh, is either surprises you or just sort of validates what, what you went through yourself? I didn't realize the whole process for me going through, you know, the first coming back 11 years, 11 years after the first time, but not 11 years, I'm sorry, five years after the first time. And this last latest stage when I was in hospital, as you were talking about earlier, I didn't realize my journey would be this long. So I was surprised. Mm-hmm. That surprised me. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that, you know, you have cancer, you have prostate cancer. Okay, you think that you've got it taken care of. Uh, came back four or five years after that. And then, you you know, you do the radiation. And here you are four or five years after that. Just having problems. And still having problems. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it was so important for me to get it taken care of. You know, to 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 acknowledge that it was there, I still have my my life. I'm still working. I still enjoy my job. You're I still, still working full time. Yes, I am. Oh, <laughs> and I still enjoy doing what I'm doing. And and life doesn't stop. And right. each day is a blessing. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that my journey is my journey. It's accepting, like doing what I'm doing now, and talking to my friends. Talking to me, that had to correct. Did, did talking you, to you, did you hesitate? Like, do I really want to go on the radio and talk about this? Because I wondered, like, were you okay with this decision to come in? The person that I talked to, friendly. She she was nice. Our producers, yes, they are very producers, nice people. very nice people. Yes. So, mm-hmm. and this is fine. She yeah. made me feel comfortable. Okay. You know, that you can just talk and be yourself. So it's uh, it's talking about a journey, and, it, and especially you had mentioned earlier in the black community, black male. We need to talk about and take care of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, Dr. Warlick, I, I want to talk about this. Uh, I mentioned some high-profile pro- cases of prostate cancer in the news. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin recently had surgery for it. Uh, he's a 70-year-old black man, the son of the late Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, Dexter King just passed away after uh, battling prostate cancer. He was 62. Uh, tell us more about these uh, these numbers, these uh, statistics. Uh, who gets prostate cancer? I also mentioned early. Earlier, one in six black men gets the diagnosis in their lifetimes, which is more than the one in eight in general with the diagnosis. Uh, black men also twice as likely to die from prostate cancer than white men that I have in my notes. Uh, tell us about uh, this. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the, you know, the, the two examples that you uh, that you pointed out between Dexter King and, and Lloyd Austin kind of represent, in some respects, kind of the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, if you will, in the standpoint that 
uh, Lloyd Austin diagnosed at age 70. So somebody diagnosed at a, uh, you know, sort of a more typical age. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, and again, I don't know the details of his of his uh, diagnosis or treatment, but we would presume him to have a good prognosis uh, going forward based on the way it's been described uh, in the media versus the outcome for Dexter King dying from prostate cancer at a relatively young age. Mm-hmm. And so he had really what we would consider early onset disease. And again, he's sort of a um, an example of, of the outcome we're trying to avoid by starting those screenings relatively early. So there is a form of prostate cancer that black men are more likely to get? So, yeah. <laughs> so this this topic, it, it's an it's a incredibly interesting topic because it's really, really complicated. So the statistics that you described are absolutely true. So black men are more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and more likely to die from prostate cancer. I should also note, however, that the rates of death from prostate cancer over the last previous sort of 20 years, the rates of death from prostate cancer have been decreasing. And the group that saw the greatest decline over that time frame was African-American men. So the rates were dropping faster for African-American men than they were for Caucasian men over that same time period. That being Good. said, this disparity still persists. Mm-hmm. Now, the disparity, you know, again, we can point to it, and, and the causes, as it turned out, are very complicated, multifactorial, right? So we certainly know that things such as access to care, unequivocally, right. this is a problem. Playing a role. So mm-hmm. if you are not, um, if you are diagnosed when the disease is already outside of the prostate and taking up residence in some other part of your body, your survival is fundamentally different than if we catch the disease when it is still confined to the prostate. Mm -hmm. And so access to care, being able to even even have the option of screening uh, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. But there is some uh, more research coming out just literally in the last handful of years suggesting that the gene mutations that result in cancers in African-American men are, I will just describe them as different than the, than the profile of mutations that we typically see in uh, Caucasian men when they develop prostate cancer. And so we're now learning to, trying to figure out the implications of these differences and which of any of these differences result in some of the worst outcomes that, that we see. Um, but it's not so straightforward. There are mm-hmm. some data that suggests in some studies we see that for the sage, uh, if people have ac- equal access to care for the same stage and the same grade, that the outcomes end up being very similar from Caucasian mm-hmm. men and African American men. And there are other studies that that in that you know same concept of equal access setting, a difference persists. So uh, it's a very complicated scenario. Mm. I did a show about breast cancer. I would encourage people to uh, listen to a few weeks ago. And there was also a a conversation about black women and breast Mm. cancer, the different types that uh, black women are likely to get and uh, the poor outcomes that we may see. Uh, uh, Let's get to more of these phone calls. In North Oaks, Bill is on the phone. Bill, thank you for listening. Thank you for waiting and for calling in. What do you want to tell us about prostate cancer? Bill? pulling off the freeway right oh, now. Please, thank I, you. Uh, my case is unusual because we caught it by accident, mm. strictly by accident. I was in the ER for a, a hip problem. The doctor ordered uh, an x-ray, but the tech placed the film slightly to one side and slightly high, so it, so it uh, included it prostate. Mm. The radiologist noticed a... Um, 
a dark spot on my prostate and uh, told me to see a, a urologist. Uh, when I did, we went through the normal things and and found that I had prostate cancer. Oh, um, I had no history of anything like that, uh, none in my family. Um, I always had uh, the digital exams, and I always had my prostate checked. And prostate never went below, uh, never went above, rather three. So it came as a came as a complete surprise. Uh, we've been doing watchful waiting on it for five or six years now. But uh, my new urologist did a did a uh, genetic study on it, and we found that it is uh, highly likely to spread in my body. Mm-hmm. So now we're we're uh, going to do something with either radiation or um, or surgery on a thing. But if it hadn't been for that tech placing the X-ray wrong, wow. I never would have known. What a story, Bill in North Oaks. I'm glad uh, that you it was discovered and you're getting treatment for it. Thank you, Bill. Uh, let's go to Minneapolis. Charlie is on the line. Charlie, thank you for listening and calling in. What do you want to tell us about prostate cancer? Well, uh, I have pretty much the same uh, as everybody else. A large prostate, B, you know, BPH. I have, a, have a family history of it. My father had prostate cancer. So I was getting checked regularly. My PSA was what's called a sawtooth pattern, up and down, up and down. We decided to get uh, an MRI done just to see if there's any issues. There's some spots that they thought were suspicious, so I had the, the biopsy done. The, the spots where the biopsies were taken from were negative, but they happened to find a place by accident, much like this other guy. Um, by accident, and uh, that was tested positive. So, um, went through the dilemma of do I wait, watchful waiting is what they call it, mm-hmm. or do I uh, have my prostate removed? Dr. Knaler, um told me, well, there's one option, we can get it genomically tested and see what happens to help you make the decision. It wasn't covered by insurance, but I did it anyway because of my family history. And uh, the, the testing came back, and they said I had a 95% chance of dying in five years because it was a very aggressive form of prostate cancer. Solved my issue of what, what I'm going to do about it. So um, I've been cancer-free now since 19, or 2019. Wonderful. Uh, so that's my story. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Let's get to another listener. Uh, in Minneapolis, Brandon is on the phone. Brandon, what do you want to tell us about prostate cancer or ask? Yeah, so uh, I don't have prostate cancer. Uh, It's more of a question, Um, Mm -hmm. but both my father and my brother had prostate cancer in their early 50s. Uh, My dad's currently 75 and and cancer-free, and my brother's 55 and and cancer-free. I'm 38, and I'm wondering what the recommendation would be for Mm me kind of to get my prostate checked or, you know, when that time comes, you know. All right, Brandon, let's ask uh, Dr. Warlick that uh, family history there, father and older brother, what should Brandon do? Yeah, so with two first-degree relatives, certainly your risk is roughly fourfold that of the uh, average risk. And so we would recommend probably starting in about the next couple of years, so age 40, that uh, you may consider uh, getting uh, your first PSA test and then determine uh, subsequent screening intervals, uh, depending on what that initial value is. But certainly you do want to start early. 
Um, let's take um, a moment to talk about, um, you know, survivorship. And and Willie, so now you've had years of being a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um what do you want people to know about what life is like on the other side? <laughs> life is fine. You know, I'm like I said, I'm still working. I still mm-hmm. enjoy. I still life. I still enjoy my, you know, have fun with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I find myself talking about prostate cancer. And especially in our community, men, we need to get our checks. We need the, the physical. We need all that sort of stuff. And it's important that we take care of ourselves. And, you know, so I find myself talking more about it. Because at times, as the doctor said earlier, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to have happen. And do you find men take this this information differently from other men than they do from women? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because, you know, I think what, you know, I had one real quick experience. I was at a friend's house. We were at a picnic or what have you. And there were about 10 guys, black men. We were in the kitchen talking. And time stood still. And someone knew, Willie, you had, you know, you had cancer. What's this all about? And we end up having a conversation right then and there without any interruption. It seemed like time stopped. Mm-hmm. And those guys said, well, we're going to go talk to my doctor about this. I'm going to do that. So, But it's important for us, especially in our community, in our community, to take care of ourselves. Physicals, that's so important that we do that. Mm-hmm. And in this conversation, and I said, talk to your kids because some of the guys are you know, older, young, or what have you. But it was important that they talk about this in our community. And, and as the doctor says, before, some of the guys didn't have insurance, so they were concerned about getting that. Who's going to pay for a, it? Who's right. going to pay for it? Right. And that's a real, real question. But in the community, you know, you can go to you got North Minneapolis, North Spot. You know, you can get that stuff taken care of. So my whole thing is, don't be afraid to ask what's going on with my body. Right. If you feel something that's different, it's important that you check it out. Dr. Warlick, in just our last minute here, anything on the horizon, uh, anything about the future treatment of prostate cancer that that you're optimistic about or that you want people to know? Yeah, just in uh, very briefly, uh, what I would say is that there are exciting things happening on the on the. uh, the end, the the, the spectrum uh, of prostate cancer from sort of uh, focusing on early uh, treatment of early disease, again, in the uh, rise of focal therapy, as we talked briefly about, and then another perhaps even more exciting areas in advanced disease. We have a whole cadre of new drugs and tools that we have to treat advanced prostate cancer that we have not had before the last 10 to 15 years. And the um, life expectancy for people, even with advanced disease, is growing daily. Dr. Warlick, we are out of time. Willie, out of time for the conversation. Thank you so much to the two of you for sharing so much. And thank you to our listeners who shared as well. Prostate cancer, we know a lot about it now. Uh, We've been talking with Dr. Christopher Warlick, the head of the Department of Urology at the University of Minnesota Medical School, as well as an associate professor there. And Willie Bridges, a prostate cancer survivor from many. Minneapolis. Uh, Thank you for your time today. This conversation today was uh, produced by Gretchen Brown. We'll talk again soon, everybody. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.